When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm April Glazer. And I'm Will Arenas. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, October 9th. On today's show, we'll talk about the latest data spill in Silicon Valley. And it is Google this time. The Wall Street Journal reported that Google's less than popular social media site, Google Plus, had exposed hundreds of thousands of its users' private data back in the spring. Google quietly fixed the problem, but did not announce it publicly, reportedly to avoid a potential regulatory response, because this was happening at the same time as the Cambridge Analytica issue with Facebook. On Monday, it was announced that Google Plus will be closing shop for good. Oh, no, not Google+. Plus. (laughs) Also this week, it's time to talk gadgets again. This week, Facebook announced a new device called the Portal. There's actually two of them, the Portal and the Portal Plus. It's essentially a smart screen for making video calls, equipped with an AI camera and powered by Amazon Alexa. Google rolled out its own lineup of devices. I was here in New York today for its Made by Google event. It has a new smart display called the Google Home Hub, a new tablet that shares a name with our employer, and a new phone that's interesting mostly for its camera, but also for the way it's using AI. Later in the show, we'll be joined by tech attorney and privacy expert Tiffany Lee. Lee teaches a course at Yale about the changing rights to privacy. We'll talk to her about what privacy rights we really have, the difference between government and corporate surveillance, and the difference between a hack and a breach, and why it matters what we call it. And as always, we will end with Don't Close My Tabs, some of the best things we've seen on the web this week. All right, April, how are you doing this week? I'm good. How are you? I'm all right. I'm here at our, our Slate studios in Brooklyn, New York. Um, I was here for the Google event this morning. But on the train up from Delaware, I was reading your piece, a really good piece today <laughs> nice on video. how um, it was great. It was, on, it was on how white supremacists are still using Discord servers to organize. And this, was, this piece was especially useful to me because Discord is one of those things that I, I know I should know what it is, but I had never really taken the time to figure it out until now. And it's this, this gaming chat community, right, where people can privately and anonymously chat with each other around games, but actually now they're doing it around, uh, like, Nazism and white supremacy memes and that kind of stuff, too. It's, it's similar to Slack, yeah. Uh, but, you know, a lot of people who... Um, are in the alt-right or the kind of internet version of white supremacist and neo-Nazi hate groups, which is called the alt-right, uh, are also into video games. And so it became a place where people could spin off private chat rooms and start to discuss uh, rather comfortably issues uh, pertaining to their hate, whether they were organized in the Unite the Right rally in 2017, which Discord was used for, or today where they exchange memes uh, and, and swastikas and uh, and things that are kind of making fun of uh, marginalized groups in the United States. Uh, it's where they invite other gamers to come and have these kinds of 
uh, non-politically correct conversations and actually slowly kind of indoctrinate other gamers into philosophies of hate. So I wrote about that. People should check it out if if it's something they're concerned about and interested in. It, it was kind of a bigger investigation, but so many of those and <laughs> so much uh, news, you know, it'll be a different story tomorrow. So. And speaking of which, uh, you, I think you've been following at least somewhat this Google Plus story. Um, what's the latest bad news with Google Plus? <laughs> well, Google Plus is going to sunset. I, I don't think anyone uses it. Did you ever have a Plus account, Will? Yeah, I did. Of course I did. <laughs> you did? Right. No, I think I did for like a minute. I don't remember. I remember just always being like, what is this? <laughs> but um, but yeah, Google Plus is going to sunset. And that's because a vulnerability was reported that was in Google Plus that allowed for about 500,000 users to be affected and have their data, private data taken from Google Plus. Um, and this was actually found out in March. It was reported, though, in the Wall Street Journal yesterday. And then Google followed up with a blog post saying that they're going to be sunsetting Google Plus and tightening their APIs, which is uh, what allows companies to kind of plug into Google Plus and, and integrate with it. Uh, and that is how the um, the vulnerability was exploited, apparently. Right. And, and first of all, sunsetted feels like way too generous a term for what's happening Sorry, because I guess Plus. it would have to be like sun shining before the sun sets, right? So. Yeah, it's more like, more like yeah. crashing and burning. Um, but uh, it's interesting how that, that always happens with these products that, that are sort of, that like nobody really uses anymore. They fall into disuse. And then I guess maybe the people whose job is to build and maintain those products kind of drift away or, or like... Uh, if you're Google, you're not devoting a lot of resources. And so maybe that's how these vulnerabilities come about. But you mentioned that it was discovered in April that you mean Google found or out March. about it in April. In March. Yeah. Okay. And, and they, but they didn't tell anybody. And that sounds, that sounds pretty bad. Um, how bad was <laughs> this, was this bug though? How did, how did they get away with not telling anybody? Well, because apparently they fixed it when they, they found out about it, but they decided not to tell folks about it uh, because this was happening. And, I, you know, maybe this wasn't exactly why, but it was important to note happening at the same time that Cambridge Analytica was really coming to a boil. Uh, and that, of course, led Mark Zuckerberg to, to testify in front of Congress. And uh, according to The Wall Street Journal's reporting, it was uh, decided that Google would not come forward about this publicly, that they weren't obliged to because uh, because of the regulatory scrutiny that it would bring, because they were in a hot environment. And, you know, if it seemed like both Facebook and Google were both uh, had these incredibly porous practices that allowed uh, their data to be siphoned off the platform, private data that people had trusted them with, then maybe that would be ripe for regulation. <laughs> but instead, it seemed uh, the national conversation was that this was a Facebook problem and Google very much avoided that scrutiny. Right. I remember at that time, for that week or two that Facebook's Cambridge Analytica scandal was dominating the headlines, I would call the other tech companies and ask them about their situations. Nobody wanted to talk. They were like, oh, no, we're going to let Facebook ride this one out by themselves. That Like, Google didn't want to be in that news cycle. Twitter didn't want to be in that news cycle. They wanted to let Facebook take all the brunt of it. But there was a difference, right? Because the whole the whole reason Cambridge Analytica blew up is because we knew that this that this information, or we thought we knew at first, at least this information had been used by a political consultancy to try to, try to help elect Donald Trump. I think in, afterward, it became less clear, a little murkier, whether 
it actually was used in that way. But that was that was the idea. Whereas Google says they don't know whether any of the, whether this loophole was actually exploited by hackers or whether anybody's data was actually stolen. Right. Well, whether or not we know if, how it was used with Cambridge Analytica, we know that the data was taken, right? right. And that seems something that's pretty clear. Uh, with Google, it's less clear because they say they don't keep logs of this, which means it definitely could have been, and they just don't know. Uh, and so, you know, Google is saying, to our knowledge, we don't believe that this was used in uh, in in a way, or that 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 you know nobody took advantage of this. But uh, but it's also one of those things where we just don't know. And that's the thing with the data spill is that there's no cleaning it up. I mean, once the toothpaste is out of the tube, you can't put it back in. And, uh, and you know, the Cambridge Analytica kind of scandal did result in FTC investigation and SEC investigation and congressional inquiries. And Google might be subject to FTC investigation here, too, because Google, like uh, Facebook, was under a 2011 consent decree that they would inform their users of uh, data that was mishandled. And it seems like they did not do that. So we may be uh, ripe for an FTC investigation here and maybe an SEC investigation because the Security Exchange Commission just this year uh, fined Yahoo $35 million for not telling investors about their cyber breach for two years. And so, you know, we may uh, we may see the SEC start to probe this as well. I don't think anybody will be sad to see Google Plus go, or at least not many people. I know that were, there were a few communities on there that appreciated one difference with Facebook, which is that you could have these interest-based communities, right? So people interested in astronomy could have their group and talk to each other about astronomy, um, whereas Facebook doesn't, doesn't allow that kind of context. But to me, Google Plus always sort of showcased Google at its worst. I mean, it tried to come out with something and just use its sheer scale to crush Facebook at its own game, and it threw everything it could at it. It, it required you to have to use Google Plus to log into YouTube for a while. Remember that? And then it made it so that if you didn't have a Google Plus account, then you wouldn't be at the top of search results. It was like doing everything it could to try to make Google Plus happen. And not only did it never really make Google Plus happen, but uh, it apparently exposed all of our data. So thanks for that, Google. Uh, So with that, let's transition now to uh, the hardware that Google and Facebook are about to start selling because we all want to give them more of our data. Yeah. So, Will, you spent the morning in uh, one of Google's dog and pony shows that they do every year. Uh, and, I, <laughs> and I've and i been to a few of them, and they're pretty cool. I, I remember I was there last year in San Francisco and the year before that in San Francisco. This year it was in New York, and it's a made-by-Google event. What did Google make this year? Google made at least three major new products. Uh, one was the anticipated Pixel 3 phone. And The reason people love the Google Pixel is that by a lot of accounts, it has the best camera of any smartphone you can buy. And given that taking pictures is something a lot of people actually enjoy doing with their smartphone, that gives the Pixel a lot of obvious appeal. Um, I think it was smart of Google to try to get its smartphone uh, hardware business back up and running by focusing on the camera. And the latest features for the Pixel are taking advantage of Google's AI prowess. So... um, And so there's this feature called Top Shot, where when you shoot a photo on the Pixel, if you have a certain setting turned on, it actually shoots a little longer of a time frame than just the one snap. And then Google's AI can figure out, you know, if if you happen to snap the photo at the moment when somebody was blinking, or you kind of missed your shot by just a fraction of a second or just a second, which happens to all of us, it can actually go back in, find the shot that you meant to take, and then let you use that shot instead, which is kind of cool. So this is all on a phone? Right. This is the Pixel phone. Yeah, this is the Pixel 3 phone. They also announced um, a tablet called the Pixel Slate, 
which kind of annoyed me, especially because their font looks sort of like the Slate font. Um, but the the Pixel Slate, uh, one of the things that's unique about it is that it, it snaps right into a keyboard and basically becomes a Chromebook. So it's like it's sort of like a a, a tablet and a Chromebook in one. And then the third was the Google Home Hub, and this is a smart display. So if you've heard of sp- smart speakers like the Amazon Echo or the Google Home, um, they're now starting to make these with screens. Um, and Google, I think, did a smart thing here, which is they didn't put a camera in this one. So it's not actually spying on you. Um, and that differentiates it from the Facebook portal, which was also announced this week. That is mostly a video chat device. Again, it's it's a little screen that you put. It's a screen and a speaker that you like put in your kitchen and it's used mostly for video chatting. So like uh, talking with your, you know, you're supposed to call mom more often because you have this uh, Facebook portal. So I want to talk about Facebook more in a second, but I also want to iterate that Google Home has been successful, right? I mean, at least their marketing campaigns are all over the radio and people are buying them, it appears. And so Google seems to be transitioning uh, pretty well into the smart speaker space. Yeah. And here's a case where Google has apparently successfully been able to use its scale to just bust into a market that somebody else pioneered. Um, the, right. the Amazon Echo was so popular that the that Alexa became synonymous with the idea of talking to a computer. Um, but uh, Google has come along and with their with their gigantic marketing budget and uh, their ability to partner with all kinds of different smart home makers and that sort of thing. And also their ability to put it in retail stores has made a difference. You know, Best Buy um, doesn't always want to stock an Amazon product or Walmart is, is a direct competitor with Amazon. So they don't want to stock an Amazon product necessarily. They're happy to, sta- to stock the rival product from Google. And uh, so the, the data now show oh, interesting. that, yeah, so the data now show that Google is rapidly gaining ground. And in fact, the projections say that Google Home should outsell Amazon Echo pretty soon. Wow. So yeah, Google did really bust onto the scene there. And uh, it's interesting that since Amazon sells everything, it has a lot of rivals. And so people are willing to stock a Google Home instead. I didn't think about that. I'm curious, though, what's going to happen with this new Facebook product that you brought up. Now, Facebook is going to actually be selling that, I believe, on a standalone website and also be selling it or at least advertising uh, for it through Facebook. But Facebook did announce uh, its new hardware product yesterday. It's called a portal. And this is the first completely designed in-house, manufactured in-house, and now sold in-house piece of hardware from Facebook. Uh, And it is also a screen that you can talk to. It's like a tabletop uh, smart speaker, but uh, it's primarily, at least in its, its face, a screen. And the more expensive one pivots around. There are two versions. One is cheaper than the other. It's 10 inches, and the 15-inch one is something like $350. The smaller one is like $200. Uh, and that's going to be available soon, and they hope to sell them over the holidays. This is terrible timing for Facebook to try to enter into people's living room. I mean, it was just less than two weeks ago that the company was public about the absolute worst hack in its history. Yeah, this is a tough sell for Facebook. And to not helping matters is the fact that the initial reviews of the Facebook portal are not great. Apparently, it's not really good at anything except making (laughs) a video call. (laughs) Uh, This this shouldn't be shocking, man. I know Facebook is a huge company with tons of resources, but, you know, different companies have their core skill set in different areas. And Facebook's has never been in hardware. They've had this Building 8 project working on this for a couple years now. But if you remember their last foray into hardware, and most people have forgotten because it was such a failure, but it was called the Home. It was the, it was a Facebook phone, but it was actually manufactured by HTC. 
nobody bought it. Nobody really wanted their their phone's home screen to default to Facebook. And I, I think there's a good chance that nobody will want a, a, a smart display with a camera that follows them around the room in their own house that is also run by Facebook at this juncture in history. Yeah. Uh, on the phone note, I just want to add that Amazon, Facebook and Google have not been very successful with their attempts to make a phone. Um, this is just not a space where any of these companies have really found success. Um, some people use Pixel. I can think of two people that I know, but none none of them have been able to get a footing there. The smart home speaker, though, is a place where at least uh, Amazon and, and Google have been able to, to take hold. Yeah, and I will say a word in defense of the concept of the, the Facebook portal. Um, it's, it's awfully hard to trust this coming from Facebook. But I don't think the idea itself is flawed. Maybe if it were another company doing this, it, it could get more footing. Who knows? Maybe it will work and, and Facebook will be able to sell these things. But I think the idea that it's limited to just video calls is not such a bad idea. I mean, often what really sells a technology is that one killer app. And for the for the Amazon Echo, it's the ability to to just say the song you want and have it start magically playing. Um, and if, if Facebook really focuses on video calling and gets that right... The idea is something like you could just bring a person into your home and have them. It's it's like they're there with you. You could imagine a future for a device like this where it becomes almost like a telepresence bot, where like a person can mm-hmm. just can just you know video conference into your room and be there in the on your kitchen counter talking to you, and then they can go away and and then you'll talk to them later. Right. It's just the thing with Facebook is that Facebook is a globally targeted advertising company. And this is why I felt so uncomfortable with Google as well when I tried the home in my house, because it's like I know that they say they're keeping data in this certain way or that it's local or, you know, and 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 all of these caveats. And Facebook likewise says that with the portal that the data is being stored on the device, it's not being taken by Facebook servers, that it's encrypted calls. But what you're doing is you're letting this massive advertising company put a camera and a microphone in your house. And we have to remember that like Facebook has all of these wild patents out about what they would like to do with their camera technology and that they run the largest name to face recognition database in the world. Um, and so, you know, they uh, they've they've developed or worked on a feature that can identify a user if her face is hidden. Right. Like drawing from unique identifiers like her body shape or her hair or her posture. Um, The company has patented tech that can deliver ads based on your perceived emotions, right? And so Facebook might not be doing this now, but if there's hope to use some iteration of this tech that they've actually developed down the road, uh, which I don't know why else they would be developing it, then having a camera in the house seems like a great way to do that. I'm not saying that they're doing this now in any way, and I'm not trying to scare anyone, but if the technology exists and the ability exists, uh, it seems like... I'm not really sure what their end game is with putting these in the house and how they're really going to monetize it. I don't think they're making a lot of money off selling the device. So I am very weary and aware of how they will monetize this in the future. And I know what they're capable of. Yeah, no, I don't think that's paranoid. I think we should absolutely be worried about that. And I think their ability to to make this work at all will depend on their ability to somehow sort of I don't wanna, I don't want to say deceive us. Or maybe I do, but they they have to somehow persuade us that this is our mother or father on the kitchen counter, or this is our best friend in our living room or our significant other, and not Facebook sitting there spying on us. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll have our interview with tech attorney and privacy expert Tiffany Lee.
card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Our guest today is Tiffany Lee, a technology attorney and legal scholar. She's a postdoctoral fellow at Yale Law School's Information Society Project, where she leads the Wikimedia Yale Law School Initiative on Intermediaries and Information. Her academic research focuses on privacy, intellectual property, particularly copyright, and technology platform governance. And she joins us now in the Slate Studios in Brooklyn. Tiffany Lee, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me here. So you're teaching a class right now at Yale Law School. The class is called The Changing Right to Privacy. And with apologies for starting out really basic, I wondered if you could just tell us, do we have a right to privacy in the United States? And if so, where does that right come from? So I start off in my class with looking at privacy from a few different points of view, right? I think philosophically, we think of privacy in terms of, you know, protecting information or protecting selfhood, maybe protecting the self against the community. But legally, I think there are two strands of privacy that are really key, right? We have constitutional law. And then we have civil law, so law between people or between people and corporations and so on. Your class is called The Changing Right to Privacy. What is changing about it? So what's interesting, I think, is that people don't really realize that privacy law or just laws about privacy are actually relatively new. At least in the United States, we didn't really start off with any constitutional or other right to privacy. There is no amendment that is just the privacy amendment. But we developed these types of privacy laws sort of piecemeal one by one throughout the years. Um, And I think that it really started with this concept of what the legal scholars called the right to be let alone. And now, of course, when we talk about privacy in the tech world, we're often talking about uh, our personal information being used maybe in ways we didn't expect or ways we feel are unfair by by these platforms to which we turn over so much of our information when we use them. Are we, when we agree to the terms of service for something like Facebook or Google, are we signing away all those, you know, whatever privacy rights we might have had, either in constitutional or tort law? That really depends. So many times when you sign up for a service, if you say, yes, I agree to the terms and conditions, you do sign away some of your rights. For example, you often consent to certain collection of data. You consent to the companies using your data to sometimes target advertisements uh, or sell your email address to a marketing company, that kind of thing. Um, But you can't really sign away, for example, your Fourth Amendment right against search and seizure, right, Um, or your right against unreasonable search and seizure. So there are limits, but definitely with privacy policies and terms of use, you can sign away some protections you might at least think you would otherwise have. I want to push back against most of this conversation, not because there's anything wrong in it, but because I don't think it's that useful. And I just think talking about privacy in these legal frameworks isn't that useful because most people's lived experiences isn't uh, about whether or not 
like their privacy rights are being violated or not. Most people's lived experiences are that our data is being collected by all these companies all the time. We don't really have a choice as to whether or not we engage with these companies or else we're not really engaging in social life. If you are a person that's in a community of color, then when you walk down the street, you're going to be surveilled and potentially pulled over by cops. And therefore, you uh, have less privacy in your car walking down the street in your body than most people do. You know, it seems that uh, talking about privacy as a right kind of obfuscates the fact that uh, not everybody has the same experience with privacy. Um, and also it talks about it also kind of values harm to the Constitution or it, it, it kind of focuses privacy as a framework wherein we're talking about our rights being violated as opposed to our communities being violated or our our communities being harmed. And I care more about kind of harm to our communities than I do a harm to our rights that not everybody actually gets to have in practice. I think that's those are all great points. And I have a few things that immediately jump to mind when you talk about the sort of concept of privacy and I guess you would say privacy and inequality. So first, there's a very recent book by Dr. Kiara Bridges, and it's called The Poverty of Privacy Rights. So she writes about how In practice, even though we have legal protections and so on, certain groups of people have just less privacy than others. And I think she focuses primarily on low-income mothers and how through the U.S. healthcare system, they really have their privacy rights continually violated. And it's all legal and all above the law. And we all kind of accept that this is just the way things are. So that's one example. I'm sorry, what do you mean by privacy rights, though? I mean, it's if it's if it's legal and above the law, then they're not really having their rights violated. And then you're saying that you, you mean some sort of human right? Right. I'm thinking more okay. of um, privacy as an idealistic human right there. OK, right. Because the, if then they're not having their rights violated if it's within the bounds of law. Sorry, because so you're going to give another example. Right. So the other thing I was thinking of is when we talk about how privacy has changed over the years, uh, many people actually take a critical look at this. So in critical legal studies, we look at the development of privacy law, and people say that many of the same things that we just discussed. So we talked about privacy being the right to be let alone, but it was really designed by people who were worried about paparazzi, and not just paparazzi. These were wealthy individuals who were worried that the common folk would hear about their own issues. They didn't want the rumors in their elite social circles to get down to the rest of the public. And that's kind of where the right to privacy developed. So in one sense, it was already sort of an unequal system. So there was an op-ed in The Times recently, which we've mentioned on the show. um, The headline sort of grabbed me was, just don't call it privacy. And the argument by Natasha Singer was that we should stop talking so much about privacy, which, as both of you have pointed out, can be this sort of vague, uh, airy concept, and talk more about the exploitation of our personal data or, or how our uh, expectations are, are violated or how our trust is violated. Um, what's your thought on when the term privacy is appropriate and when we should instead be talking about harms or exploitation or, or some, other, you know, some other way of talking about these issues? Privacy is a perhaps imperfect term, especially right now. I think one of the issues that that article and the other people have brought up is that we use privacy in such a limited way. Right? We talk about privacy in terms of literally just keeping information private. So we ask companies to keep data secret, and that sometimes that's it. 
Um, but the harms that the writer was talking about in that article and the harms that really affect people today aren't just secrecy of information. It's the use of information, especially when you consider algorithmic decision making and so on. So definitely those privacy harms, I think, are something separate than what we consider privacy under the law sometimes. And we don't have laws that really protect against those specific harms. Uh, so some people are talking about looking at privacy as more of a holistic issue. And that's something that lawmakers will have to do as well. Now, when we talk about our right to privacy traditionally in the United States, we're talking about the right to be free from government surveillance, right? Um, not necessarily the right to be free from corporate surveillance. And at least, you know, when we talk about consti our constitutional right to privacy, um, which, again, is something that is kind of difficult thing to parse because it's within aspects of the Constitution, but not explicitly laid out. Uh, I'm curious, though, do we have any sort of legal protections against corporate surveillance? There would be some protections against uh, the government requests for data from those corporations. And this is an issue that has come up in a lot of contexts, uh, not just for privacy, but also for free speech. So very often, various governments around the world will make requests of companies either for user data or for content takedowns. And this is a way for the government to kind of regulate the people through the corporations. So there are certain uh, legal abilities for people to fight against that, although it's a little muddy because this isn't super clear. Um, aside from that, if you're thinking directly, if there's anything legally protecting people against corporate surveillance, it's a little hard. Because if you think back to civil law, a lot of it is, again, based on sort of this right to be let alone. So if you consent to someone using your information, accessing your information, and so on, you don't really have any legal recourse after that. And that's one of the things I think a lot of the laws right now are trying to figure out. So one one thing I want to be sure we bring up if we're talking about kind of the genesis of of privacy law or or of uh, an invasion of privacy is COINTELPRO. Because yes, I mean, we can date this back to Brandeis, but really we saw uh, kind of the wholesale um, surveillance of communication systems really come into, uh, come into its own through government surveillance of African-American activists in the 60s. And so I'm curious how COINTELPRO and how the surveillance of uh, Black communities has shaped our current understanding of privacy and our right to privacy today. That's interesting. I think if you think of privacy, at least in terms of government surveillance, you see a lot of surveillance of marginalized groups, uh, surveillance of people who might be considered political dissenters and so on, right? And this has happened throughout history and, of course, not just in the United States. But this concept of protection against that kind of surveillance, I think, is really important and that's why we do have the Fourth Amendment and we do have constitutional protections. And of course, we're not perfect. And of course, throughout history, uh, there have been many incidents in which um, I would say surveillance has occurred in a way that has not been very fair, right? But the ideal is that we still remember those values and try to uphold them anyway. So there's talk now, there was the California privacy law that passed. Now there's talk at the federal level in Congress about a, a federal privacy law. What direction do you see that heading and what direction would you like to see it heading? I mean, what, what do we need in terms of a more modern legal framework for these types of, of issues? So the federal privacy law, I think, is definitely going to happen uh, right now, if, if for no other reason, because many of the tech corporations are heavily supporting this. So they're supporting this and it's probably going to be a PR win for the legislators as well. 
Uh, the public is upset about things like the fa- Facebook Cambridge Analytica scandal. What I would like to see happen, I think a few things. First, there are a few things we can learn from what the EU did with the General Data Protection Regulation, so with the GDPR. It did focus on privacy, and it gave people certain rights, like access to data, which I think were great. Uh, but there were also some drawbacks and some flaws that we can learn from as well. So, for example, I think that um, under the GDPR, some of the requirements for companies were very strict and didn't really make sense in terms of the actual technological capabilities of different corporations. So I'm sure that in the U.S. version of the law, we'll probably have less stringent requirements for some of these things. But I really hope that what we can get to is kind of what we were discussing earlier with that New York Times op-ed. Hopefully, this new U.S. privacy regulation can move past just those very specific details like access to data and look at privacy on a holistic level. Just really, what are the responsibilities of these tech platforms and what do we want or what do people deserve from them? Sorry, Tiffany, did you say that uh, Internet companies are in favor of privacy legislation? Yes, um, and specifically this federal regulation. Yeah, so they're in favor of some version of it, but not necessarily in favor of a version of it that would necessarily be good for consumers or in favor of a version of it that would be good for them, I'm sure, and one that they're okay with. I mean, that's always how it is, right? It's always a balancing of different um, legislative voices there. Yeah, and so I think talking about federal privacy legislation without kind of talking about what that legislation entails and and who's backing it is, is, is not... As valuable because we really need to 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 understand that if if it's tech companies that uh, we're talking about regulating here and they're the ones that are kind of setting the conversation up for how they should be regulated, then that regulation is probably not going to necessarily be in the interest of the public. And so I'm worried that a lot of these conversations that are happening uh, at the congressional level right now around what privacy legislation should look like are not being set by public interest groups, but instead are actually being pioneered neared by uh, by the companies, the very companies that that we're looking to regulate. It'd be like if Shell was creating uh, creating its own environmental protection rules. That's definitely a danger. And this is something many privacy advocates have brought up. I think people get confused when they hear about this new privacy regulation because they don't realize what you just said, that likely a lot of these corporate interests are really backing the drafting of whatever regulations might appear. And people are worried that what that means is we'll get a very defanged law, right? We'll get a law that actually doesn't do anything to protect consumer interests. The only way we can get around that is to have more voices in that conversation, right? To have civil society more involved, to have privacy advocates both more involved and ideally actually listen to. All right. Before we let you go, this has been really interesting. I I wanted to to circle back to the idea of of signing away our privacy rights when when we sign up for these terms of service. Um... You did say that we we don't ever entirely sign away our constitutional privacy rights, like our Fourth Amendment right. Um, but obviously, we do give companies permission to collect this data on us when we sign up for these terms of service. Does it matter that they're too like they're too long and thick for anybody to understand? Like in in a legal setting, um, do these things still have force, even though you get these thirty page agreements that that everybody knows nobody can possibly read? They do still have force. So even if the privacy policy is almost impossible for the average person to understand. As long as the company has a privacy policy and it checks off the right boxes and the user consents to it, there are a lot of things the company can legally do. Uh, so, for example, even though the GDPR is so much stricter than previous privacy laws, 
A lot of the GDPR still allows companies to just get consent for data collection, data usage, and once people click consent, they can still do almost anything they were doing before. Okay, that does it for the interview. Tiffany Lee, thank you so much for joining us. Great, thank you both. One final quick break, and then don't close my tabs. Some of the best things we've seen on the web this week. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Okay, Will, uh, since I think I started last week, or maybe I was like a lone tabber last week, why don't we start with you? Um, what did you or what have you not been able to close and what captivated your attention online so far? All right. This is not a happy tab. The tab that I haven't been able to close is the IPCC report on climate change. <laughs> um, this is a new special report. Uh, on the impacts of global warming of 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Um, and the, the takeaway, as I understand it, I didn't read the whole 700-page report. Um, I did skim through the 34-page summary for policymakers. But the takeaway is that even relatively moderate global warming uh, of the, the scale that we're on the brink of getting already is going to be really, really bad. Yeah, and so it's it's 22 years. Is that what I'm seeing from that? Or is that what I remember reading, right? Like, it's super... What, what's going to happen in 22 years? There was some debt date there. Yeah, so so the idea is, one of the takeaways here is that we have 12 years, basically, to act and to cut global emissions by 45% if we're going to keep global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius or 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit, which is that threshold they identified above which it, it starts to get really, really bad. That seems, you know, just seems totally unrealistic, sadly, partly because when uh, President Trump received this report, he just didn't seem to care. He didn't hasn't mentioned it, didn't say a word about it. Right. He didn't seem to care. It's uh, it's really hard to uh, capture attention with climate news because I, at least I remember when I've done some climate reporting, it, it feels like the headlines just kind of constantly rewrite themselves. Like, you know, worst uh, summer ever. And last year was also the worst summer ever. And, you know, and the temperatures are the highest they've ever been. And the fires keep getting worse and everything just keeps getting worse. And it gets to a point where people uh, stop paying attention. The president has no excuse. <laughs> it is a huge deal. And these are exactly the type of problems that he should be grappling with. Yeah. I wonder, is there a way that we could convince Trump that like global warming will will make his buildings less tall or, or shrink his crowd sizes at rallies? Maybe then he would maybe then he would care. Um, there was a tweet I saw that that offered a glimmer of hope, maybe the tiniest glimmer of hope. Maybe that even that is opt too optimistic. But a tweet from from Paul Ford, um, who's F train on Twitter, um, suggested you know, why doesn't one of these tech platforms, I mean, these are, these are sort of pro-science people, um, why don't one of these tech CEOs make 
uh, getting out the word about climate change, their number one priority and just and put out the word through their platforms. They have access to the whole world. Why not use it for a cause like uh, education about climate change or, or at least do something to, to help us deal with this potentially largest problem in the world? But April, what cheery, optimistic, fun-loving tab do you have that is going to rescue me from the depression of my tab? Uh, no, I'm just another dark cloud, but uh, but a fascinating one, actually, and one that I recommend people taking the time to read, even though it is a slog and there is a lot of follow up on it. So uh, you're in for a big one if you do decide to read the stunning Bloomberg Business Week cover story that came out, I believe, at the end of last week or towards the end of last week entitled The Big Hack, How China Used a Tiny Chip to Infiltrate U.S. Companies. And the allegation here in the story is that Chinese spies uh, were able to get into about 30 U.S. companies, including huge ones like Apple and, and Amazon, by uh, actually getting into the supply chain with this very, very, very tiny chip that was able to you know, make its way from China, swim upstream, and find its way into um, the bowels of American uh, industry and our technology companies. And it, if, if this does appear to be true, which it seems that some are saying it really does. Others are contesting it, including Apple, are pushing back. But uh, but if this is true, as the reporting, I think, bears out, and I tend to trust uh, reporting because this stuff is, as we know, very, very legally checked and fact-checked over and over and over again, then, uh, then that's a huge deal. <laughs> that means that uh, that our devices are just completely uh, compromised by uh, foreign powers. Yeah, that that is truly scary. And but I will say that that the pushback against the story has been more forceful than I'm used to. I mean, whenever yeah, you write, totally. Whenever that's you write why I wanted to bring this up. Yes, yeah, so whenever you write something as journalist that's critical of a big company, they're going to push back it to to some degree. But there have been just blanket denials from Amazon and especially from Apple that that the story was just false, that it just got important things wrong. Um, I've been reading uh, some of the reporting in, in Vice's motherboard um, from from some of their beat reporters on the cybersecurity beat, and they're saying that people in the cybersecurity world are really scratching their head as as to who's telling the truth here and, and what the real story is. I think there, there's got to be more to come out eventually that, that helps us make sense of this. Yeah, I mean, you know, Apple really doesn't want this to be true. <laughs> Amazon doesn't want this to be true. The other 28 companies don't want this to be true. Uh, but if it is true, then uh, it's absolutely astonishing that it could happen. I mean, you know, some of the details in this story are just um, mind-blowing. One one clip reads, uh, the malicious chips were thin enough that they'd be embedded between layers of fiberglass onto which the other components were attached, according to one person who saw pictures of the chips. The generation of the chips were smaller than a sharpened pencil tip, the person says. Um, Amazon denies that... Uh, that they knew of the servers found in China containing malicious chips. So it's like the story, when you read it, they they have all these sources giving these details and then these denials that come afterwards. Uh, I really recommend people read it because this story is not going away. There is so much strong pushback from the most powerful companies in the world. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, more details are going to emerge. And if it is true, then this could mean a huge reformatting of how we think about cybersecurity in the United States. All right. We'll keep an eye on that story. 
That's going to do it for this week's show. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter. You can also email us at ifthen at slate.com. Send us your chat questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hello. You can follow me and April on Twitter as well. I'm at Will Arimus, and April is at April Laser. Thanks again to our guest, Tiffany Lee. You can follow her on Twitter at Tiffany CLI. Definitely recommend following her. And thanks to everybody who's left us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. Not only does it warm our hearts, it also enables other people to find out about this show and listen for themselves to the important issues that we're talking about each week. Yeah, uh, even if uh, we don't sound so important when we're talking about them, they are. If Then, it's a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Thanks to Alberto Hernandez for engineering here in Berkeley, California. And thanks to Max, who's engineering for me here at Slate Studios in Brooklyn, New York. Okay, we will see y'all, or I guess you'll hear us, rather, next week. Bye.